Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. COVID-19 has affected each and every one of us. Certainly this pandemic has hit Las Vegas hard. So here's some good news. A popular exhibit is now reopening. Real Bodies at Bally's is back with a new twist. This exhibition now includes science-based information on the coronavirus. Tom Zauer, the CEO of Imagine Exhibitions, will join us in just a few moments to explain more. Also today, you'll hear from your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com and America's first master sommelier, Eddie Osterlin. And in the second half hour, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. Today's topic is pioneering women in sports, and today you'll meet one of the best, Leslie Visser, who wrote for the Boston Globe and was a CBS regular for decades. But up first, it's always great when a big event or exhibit comes back to town. One of the Strip's most popular exhibitions is back Monday through Sunday. It's Real Bodies, located at Bally's. It's a really interesting exhibit, and we're going to talk with the CEO of Imagine Exhibitions, Tom Zauer. Well, Tom, great having you on. Really happy to hear Real Bodies is back. People are probably hearing, what is Real Bodies? It's actually a lot like the name is, right? Yeah, it's exactly like the name. We named it just for that reason. Uh, so Real Body, first of all, Stephen, thank you very much for having me on the program. I'm really excited. I've been a uh, long time, uh, been working in Las Vegas and, and really love the town and, and happy to be in this crazy, crazy time back in action, uh, as, as odd as it might be. But um, So Real Bodies is an exhibition that uh, primarily is, a, is really an anatomy lesson, if you want to look at it that way. But it allows people to... Um, understand the human body, this thing that we carry around every day in our lives. Um, we, you know, we abuse most of us, um, what it looks like, how it operates, um, in sort of in a, in a, in a digestible way. Right. So we, mm-hmm. the, the human body is really complex, right? There's a, there's an incredible amount of moving parts and, and things we don't know still, but for the layperson who just, you know, me and you who want to walk in and we're interested in a little bit more about ourselves, uh, it allows you to see, the body. So when I say see the body, what that means is, since I know you haven't seen it, um, these are plastinated human bodies and body parts, which means that uh, once a body uh, is deceased, the body is dissected and is impregnated with a liquid polymer, which is like a plastic, basically. So what you're left with is if you will, almost a cast of the whole of the human body, every single intricate little part. So you'll see things as simple as a skeleton uh, standing there in front of you or a full, um, fully uh, fleshed out uh, individual. And each one of the bodies, as you go through these variety of rooms, are posed in a, in a way and are dissected in a way to illustrate a system of the human body. So you have the skeletal system, the respiratory system, the circulatory system, the muscular system, the digestive system, and so on. Um, And it's a really powerful experience because 
everyone can relate to this exhibition because it's about you. It's about us. It's about who we are. Um, so there's a really incredible um, sort of physiological and anatomical view of the body because you can visualize what it looks like, not only like what muscle looks like, which a lot of people are familiar with, or what a bone looks like, but the inside of the bronchial tree or uh, in your lungs or the inside of a human heart where it's dissected sagittally so it's open and you can see the valves or um, the the spinal column uh, opened up so you can see all the nerve endings and the nerve bundles. Uh, it's incredibly visual and powerful uh, in that um, in, in a sort of in a beautiful way, like we don't we forget how beautiful we are. Now, granted, all these bodies, as gross as this might sound to people, <laughs> have their skin removed. Right, the skin yeah. is off, and everything is there. There's no we don't hide anything. There's no fig leaves in certain areas. Right, everything is there. But it really provides an incredible teaching opportunity for well, a learning opportunity for anybody. Yeah. Um, but certainly, when you want to bring your kids or your your if, one thing that was powerful to me uh, years ago, my mother had a knee replacement. And we have an example of what that looks like on a, on a body in the last gallery we call Repair uh, that shows what a knee replacement looks like, where it is, how that functions. Like, everybody relates to something a little bit different. Yeah, that is um, and that's so what I think cool. makes it so powerful. It, yeah. it is really cool because it's like everybody remembers that time they had to dissect a frog in high school. Yeah. <laughs> and this is really cool because this is well beyond the frog. Now you're looking at what's going on inside you. And boy, what a wake-up call that is. You know, if we take our bodies for granted and you go in and see something like that, I would imagine people are amazed by the uh, just the detail that goes in our bodies. You really kind of appreciate what you're walking around with. Well, you see, you hit something really interesting. Um, one of the displays is called, uh, we have a gallery called Breathe. And that in that gallery, um, <clears throat> there's a big sculptural display of a, of a fan that moves air around just to sort of, I wanted people to feel also physically some air movement, right? So we had a local artist uh, build this, this fan wall for us. And in that gallery, we talk about the respiratory system. And we have an example of a healthy lung and a diseased lung, most likely from a smoker. Uh, in that same room, we have the opportunity for you to take your cigarettes out of your pocket and throw them in a bin and throw them away forever. Because you can look, you can <laughs> physically see how black and gray and charred people's lungs are from of course, there's pollutions and all kinds of different things in the world. But if you're smoking, there's a much higher likelihood that you're going to have a diseased lung. So if when you physically see it, it's really powerful. I mean, you you can see it in there. So it's um, uh, there. You do think about the lifestyle choices that you make. They have a a person in the well, a person a, a, a specimen in the exhibition as well um, that has the skin remained on the outside, and you can see the fat in it. And that's also powerful because most of the bodies look pretty slender because all of the skin and all of the fat and the tissue has been removed to just show the muscle or the organs. But we have one that shows uh, sort of the the, the layers and how fat impacts and how it compacts, um, you know, makes your muscles or makes your muscles and your organs work that much harder because they're surrounded by this layer of like you think about it. If you're if you're laying on the ground and you sit up, it's not so hard. If you have a mattress on top of you, right, that's like a layer of fat. It's a little harder to get up. So everything has to work a little bit harder uh, in this it, when you're covered by that. So when you <laughs> see it visually, it's really – and I think I was talking to a colleague of mine earlier about um, what we like about the exhibition, particularly the new COVID content. And it really – it's funny. It lies – it ties right in with everything we've been saying. Um, this 
what's wonderful about this exhibition and why it's been so successful for so many years all over the world is because it's so visual. Take something so incredibly complex and puts it right in front of your face and you're in awe. More with Tom Zauer, the CEO of Imagine Exhibitions, in just a few moments. Time now for wine. Are you looking for some summer picks to pair with your pizza? Well, let's ask America's first master sommelier, Eddie Osterlin. What, do you, what kind of wines go with pizza? I'll give you one. Dolcetto, D-O-L-C-E-T-T-O. It's an easy-to-drink wine, has a lot of acidity to it, inexpensive, goes really well with a pizza. You know, another wine that's really good that people should try more of, especially in restaurants, are uh, what they call Beaujolais, but Cru, C-R-U, Beaujolais. In Beaujolais, it's got the same kind of hierarchy as the, the pyramid system. You've got uh, Beaujolais Nouveau at the bottom, which is inexpensive stuff that they drink out of pitchers when it's new. Then you have um, Beaujolais uh, Village, where the wine comes from one of 35 different villages, and it's probably more in the you know, $15 range. And then you have Cru Beaujolais at the top of the pyramid, which are $35 and up, and they stand apart from everything else. And having a, a tasting one night of Beaujolais and have all three levels, now you're talking. People are understanding. You get what you pay for. To me, there's a lot of wine out there, especially you go, when you go to Trader Joe's and, and, and you see it between 5 and $12. They got a world of wine that's fabulous out there. You need to know what to look for. You need to know what to try. Thanks, Eddie. Back with more Real Bodies next. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Hey, everybody. This is Sam Riddle, and you are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Professional line not included. We are all in this together and we can get through this. Learn more at elementalresearchinc.com and use the promo code VEGAS20. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. 
Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Let's get back to our conversation with Tom Zaller, the CEO of Imagine Exhibitions. I remember when I first heard about the virus, I was reading everything I could, right, just trying to figure it out. And there's so little that really was known about it. And still to this day, that we're learning things every day. Right. But I thought one thing I could do in my tiny little part of the world is share with other people in some visual way what this virus looks like. So we decided to work together with an epidemiologist and emergency medicine uh, doctors in, in, I'm in Atlanta, so in, in, in our area, and come up with a series of, of information, current information that we know now, which we know may change as, as this is all evolving. But what can we teach our, our guests to the exhibition about this virus and how can we show them a little bit more about it. So we added this COVID-related content in each of the galleries. Um, in many cases, it's, it's text information, um, <clears throat> but we also have videos, and we have we 3D printed a COVID-19 molecule, uh, well, actually several hundred of them, and we suspended them in the air uh, as if they were floating around a specimen that we have in the, in the final gallery. And we wanted to give you a sort of sense of, you can visually see how it works, right? Because a lot of us, we don't, it's too complicated, like receptors and molecules and all this stuff. But when you can, when you can see it and you have a minute to contemplate it, you get, I think you understand it a little bit better. That's what's really special about real bodies in general is you guys take very, very complex information. And what little I know about it in a study and talk to people that have been there, everybody loves it. And they say the biggest thing is they leave and they say, you know what? I kind of get that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's where we came away with how we approached the, 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 the you know, introduction of the COVID stuff. What I think we did really well in Real Bodies also pre-COVID, and, you know, it's still there, is also a lot of information about how we as humans have treated our bodies, how we, how we have fed ourselves over the years, how we have um, looked at the anatomy of, the, you know, for years it was taboo you know, to, to dissect a body, to learn about a body. I mean, they, and if you remember, you know, you see TV shows now or you read about in, in history about how they used to do like bloodletting because they thought that was a smart way to cure a disease. Like how little we knew and how much we know now. We talk about some of those interesting things too. So it's sort of, it's a bit philosophical at times in a way, but it's like you get this another deep connection to your body too. So you have the physical specimen that you look at and it's a, it's just, inc- I mean, Listen, Steve, I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of exhibitions all over the world on all kinds of subjects. And this, this exhibition is the most um, impactful and connected exhibition because everybody relates to it. And, yeah. and you know, Tom, I got to say, I love this concept. It, it seems like it, it makes a lot of sense. You, as somebody who does exhibitions that this would be the most, you get the most passionate behind it because it's so detailed. And I'm thinking, what a great idea for Bally's and all the places that put these exhibitions on to realize the best way is to bring in a company that does exhibitions. 
we've had a lot of great success in Las Vegas and brought several different exhibitions there over the years. And it's been a it's a great town for us. And I think it would it, you know all the properties we've worked with we've worked really well. And and now you have this beautiful, pristine, odorless. Um, you know, specimen that that you that it, that once was real, and so it's very relatable. And you don't have to have all that gross stuff. You just it's all you get all the you get all the benefit, and not the uh, yeah, not the ugly. And stuff. people have a thing about this, which I guess makes a lot of sense when you consider you know this is our life. We want to know what's going on in there. But I, I I interviewed years ago a great guy out of I think it was the University of Kentucky, although I'm not sure. And he was famous for having this area where they kept dead bodies. They brought them there and people would come and from, you know, states away and yeah, so forth and want to see it. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple of them. They're called body farms. Um, and there are a lot of, there's a few of them. There's a big one in Tennessee uh, that's pretty famous and also uh, Alabama. And, and But, but you know, the idea of, you know, all of us are, we're always trying to learn something, some, whatever that might be. Um, and so people who are, anthropologists uh or they are forensic anthropologists they will they'll 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 take body parts and they'll bury them in different you know in sand or in um in mud or in whatever and they'll they'll try to identify you know you watch the csi episodes and they talk about looks like he's been dead for three days and they know that because of the amount of decay and the type of you know the way it's decaying and and so forth and so all those all that science is there um, in this case, our specimens are are primarily used for you know in classroom study. So they'll yeah. preserve a specimen and then they can pass it around uh, a classroom so they can study it. So they don't have to do all the you know the sort of the, the dissection work. You'll also see in real bodies um, some pathology specimens, which is really interesting. You'll see, even though you know this doesn't necessarily make you understand a disease more, but when you see a physical manifestation of a cancer. Or of a like I was mentioning a smoker's lung, or 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 um, you know any of the diseases, or even the the hip replacement or the knee replacements. It's really I think it helps. Like it helps you much more than a textbook. Um, so it's really powerful. It's great right now when you know also when parents are home, local parents are home with their kids, and and they're you know looking for something to do that that's stimulating, educational, um, and fun. Um, it's cool. And also the COVID balls, that the 3D ones we printed are kind of. Uh, they're kind of fun. We made it like a selfie as if you could pretend like you're sneezing and they're shooting out of your nose. <laughs> so, I mean, you don't have to do that, but it's, it's a fun little moment if you want it. To, no, so. it really is. Well worth the time. Yeah. I tell you, I, I think it's one of the really cool things, you know, only in Vegas. Well, actually, it's other places too, but in Vegas, you can see it. It's great. It's real bodies. It's at Bally's. It's only twenty nine ninety five, really, for what you get out of this thing, an incredible price. Tom, we can't wait for your next exhibition to come out of it. I think you're going to have a long way to try to top this one. Oh, thank you, Stephen. Well, we're working on it. Thanks, Tom. Is it possible for you to become less popular at the crap tables or playing blackjack? Your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, says yes. But the question is, how? What happens is there's, there's the math of Las Vegas and there's the proper way to play. There's, uh, you know, the basic strategy in, in blackjack and there's, you know, the proper way to play in craps. But ultimately, there's also the culture and the superstition of casinos that really determines behavior as much as the proper way of playing. So uh, what happens at a, at a blackjack table is everybody's playing and then that third person over makes a choice that is not what everybody else is going to do. The one I, the example I always use and recommend is to double down on blackjack against if the dealer has a bad card, like a four or five, six. Well, 
somebody playing the basic strategy is going to freak out if you do that. But I say, look, that's my game. You can say it's going to affect the, re the rest of the deck and the, uh, the outcome of the table. I just think that's BS. I'm going to play the way I want to play. Same with craps. The only exception to that rule is people who bet against the table in craps. It's called the don't or uh, the don't pass or the dark side. That's what I call it because it is the dark side. You're betting against the table. The math is it's probably a fine bet. I just don't like it. I think it's rude, and when people get excited when they win and they're betting against the table, I think that's rude too. So I do my best to have a hot roll and drive them away from the table. Thanks, Scott. Visit VitalVegas.com every day and follow Scott on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Remember, all of our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. Today's topic, pioneering women in the world of sports media. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manchin. Vegas, here we go! They were there when history was made. Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer! The Sports Rackham Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right, down the line, it may go! Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! It's a home run! Go crazy! Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rockin' Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half-century or so of American sports. It wasn't always easy to be a woman and cover sports in this country. Some of the first had to overcome obstacles like limited access to players and coaches. Let's meet one of the very best. We all have dreams when we're kids, and years later we can assess whether we were successful at it or not. Well, Leslie Visser is with us, and you want to talk about successful, get this, 28 Super Bowls, 34 Final Fours, 12 NBA Finals, 7 World Series, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Now, Leslie, you always wanted to be a sports writer, which I think is interesting. Could you ever have envisioned that you could have done so much over all this time? Thanks for having me, Steve. Everyone thinks you're terrific, and now it's my turn. But uh, I, I had no notion other than I was a kid who was passionate about sports. You know, other people are passionate about music or poetry, and I just love sports, and I wanted to cover them, and... When I was 10 years old, when I told my mom that uh, she asked me, what do you want to be? And I said, I want to be a sports writer. And instead of saying, oh, girls can't do that, you can't do that, she said to me, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. And it, it gave me permission. I, uh, it's the title of my book about breaking barriers. 
But uh, I never had a dream of TV for me was Walter Cronkite, Huntley Brinkley, but I did go to the Boston Globe, which won the best sports section in America every single year. I remember that time because I was just getting in the business and there was out in the Bay Area, there was a, a writer, her name was Stephanie Salter. And I remember the abuse she had to take and how difficult it was to go into those locker rooms and do those things. I assume you went through all that sort of stuff because there was a, a definite pushback when uh, women started to come into the locker rooms. The Boston Globe made me the first woman to cover the NFL as a beat in 1976. So for my first seven years, there were no provisions for equality, and I stood in parking lots to do all the interviews. You know, it was, I was so grateful to have the job that I never complained. And the Boston Globe, I mean, they sent me, I'd go to Wimbledon. I did Wimbledon with Bud Collins. I did the World Series with Peter Gammons. I did the NBA Finals with Bob Ryan. And the NFL, Will McDonough was, um, I wrote for the Boston Evening Globe, and he was, of course, the legendary morning writer. Matter of fact, I was at the Raiders the day our beloved Will McDonough died, and Al uh, Davis, of course, called me up to his office, and we both just sat there and cried. It was uh, just so enormous to lose somebody of Will's stature. But, uh, yeah, so at first I used to have to stand in the parking lot, and I'd have to make a decision. Okay, let's see. If I try to grab Steve Grogan for a quote, am I going to miss Terry Bradshaw getting on the bus? Because it wasn't, you know, in locker rooms, a lot of people don't even do the work. They just stick the microphone, you know, sort of in the (laughs) middle. But I had to do 100% of the work myself, all the questions, keep the quotes. This was before people even used tape recorders. So it was a great, great learning experience for me. I had to cover games on deadline, so I had to know what I was looking at. In fact, it's, it's ironic, but the best people to me during that time were the black players. And I don't know how far back you go in the NFL, but... I used to go over and watch tape with Sugar Bear Hamilton. You'll remember he was the guy called on uh, Ben Dreif's call on Sugar Bear against Stabler in the 76 wild card. I used to go over to Sugar Bear and Tony McGee, a couple of the players, and they would play film of the defense for me to say, okay, this is the responsibility. Most people play a 3-4, or here's what you do in a 4-3. I really had to learn the game and... You know, in some ways, the restrictions on me were to my benefit. Yeah, it, it actually made you better. I, that makes a lot of sense because you had to do some of the work because there were a lot of people that used to just go to the locker rooms and they let other people ask questions. And Now, it's great to hear that the players were, were with you there, or at least some of them were. How about the, your fellow uh, writers and broadcasters? Were, were they pretty supportive initially? Oh, yeah. all the Actually, not all the players were. Uh, I'll tell you a couple of stories. But yeah, the writers were great. I think because the Globe was such a big, muscular, talented group. I mean, everybody, they all were in Halls of Fame. Um, Sports Illustrated voted the 10 years that I was at the Globe, not because of me, but they got voted the number one sports section in history. So everyone was really confident. It wasn't, it was competitive to be a great writer, be a great reporter, but not necessarily with each other. So I loved working at the Boston Globe, but it was so unusual. Uh, You know, they had no ladies' rooms when I started in the NFL because, of course, there weren't other women. So I used to have to sit there, you know, like Patriots would have the ball first and 10 on their own 20, and I'd have to go down the elevator across the field like, you know, like I was Usain (laughs) Bolt and then try to get back up. 
And Chuck Fairbanks, you know, he didn't, I look like I was from Mars to those people. The first question I ever asked Chuck Fairbanks about one of his linebackers, I was very nervous. I was 23 years old. And uh, Chuck looked at me, like narrowed his eyes. You know, he was so stoic. If you remember him from either Oklahoma or the Patriots. Yeah. And uh, the first thing he said to me was, why don't you ask my daughter to go to lunch? You're about the same age. <laughs> I think part of it is working with the Globe, like you said, when you did get into television, I remember that. Nobody was questioning, well, well she just got on because she's a pretty face or something. You had the cred to back it up. Yeah, there was nothing that um, CBS put on the air that I hadn't covered. I'd covered 10 U.S. Open tennis covered the Olympics, I'd covered the World Series, I'd done Final Fours. I don't know wherever those numbers are, but now I think I've covered 30. My first Final Four was 1980, so is that almost 40 Final Four? Yeah. My first one was, uh, I just missed Magic and Bird, of course, in 79, and 80 was uh, Denny Crum, who played for UCLA, against UCLA, when Larry Brown was the coach, the doctors of dunk for Louisville. So, yeah, there was nothing that CBS put on, but I had no no television experience. The two great executives from CBS were Ted Shaker and Neil Pilsen, and they said they'd had a woman who knew television, the great Phyllis George, but they didn't have someone who knew sports. So this time they wanted a woman who knew sports and they would teach me the TV. Yeah, it's been both have been a great run. How important was Phyllis George? Because she was actually, you know, the first one out there, and there became an acceptance after she did that with the NFL Today. Yeah, no, she was enormous. She was a friend of mine. I first met her in 1976. The Patriots got off to a great start. They beat, like, Oakland, Pittsburgh, Miami, all the gold standard teams then. So she came with the NFL Today to do a story, I think, on Chuck Fairbanks. Uh, Phyllis, for those of us who are writers... Certainly, since I was the first, but the group that came after me, which were just brilliant writers, it was Sally Jenkins, Chris Brennan, uh, Michelle Himmelberg, and all of us, we wanted to be writers. Uh, Phyllis, it was a different aspect. She was great at doing features, great at bringing people out, great at making them feel at home, and she was charming, but you know, she wasn't going to diagram a safety blitz for you. And I think the group of writers... Our interest was really in covering the sports, you know, knowing the difference between Syracuse's 2-3 zone and a box and one. So uh, Phyllis was um, just great to be not just a visible face, but charming and accessible and really a giant in our business. We will be back with Boston Globe sports writer and CBS, ABC, and ESPN broadcaster Leslie Visser in just a moment. You're listening to Sports Rockin' Tours with Stephen Maggi. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. 
go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. Welcome back to Sports Rock and Tours. You are listening to Sportscast, television and radio personality, and sports writer Leslie Visser. So when you were first in, did you kind of have to look the other way when somebody would do something? You know, something that was kind of offensive is just kind of ignore it and kind of have to do kind of what Jackie Robinson did in the sense of, you know, no matter how much you want to fight back, you just can't. Well, yeah, it was a different time. It's not really my nature. I'm kind of, uh, my family moved quite a bit when I was young, so I'm used to sort of fitting in, getting along. I would try to use humor as my default mechanism. You know, a player would, you know, I'm still to this day, everybody gets the yo baby, yo baby thing. And I would just say, you know, your mother did not teach you to talk like that. (laughs) (laughs) And when I went to television, the great Brett Musburger, uh, he was, they were really kind to me when I went to TV. I, I, drove many, many times cross-country with John Madden on his bus, and, you know, John would put up the Redskins counter tray, and I would have to know exactly what he was doing, and, you know, and John would play it over and over and over before we stopped for Mexican food. I, I would have to say, um, once I got to television, it was very, very comfortable. You know, the pressure of TV is enormous, but the environment was comfortable. You know, you mentioned John Madden, and I got to know him just at the end of his Raider coaching career. And, of course, when he got into the broadcasting side, and then who knew he was going to become a, a, a video game magnet as well. But great guy. Was he helpful in terms of, he loved to always explain the game. So if you had a question, was he one of these type that will sit down with you and really try to explain it to the greatest detail? Yep, 100%. He was, he was magnificent to know. And it was such a privilege. People would say to me, well, you know, why are you, why aren't you flying to the 49er game? I'd say, because, you know, I have a chance to uh, be on that bus and learn things. And just everything about him was an observation. Well, you went through kind of the the evolving of uh, sports broadcasting because back when when you first came in and so forth, then guys like Madden got in there. He really changed the way like like color analysis went, right? I mean, all of a sudden there was personality, but you didn't lose anything in terms of knowledge. Well, there's a reason no one can imitate him. I mean, really, he's sui generis. If they had a uh, you know Mount Rushmore, he'd be up there with you know Vin Scully, Costas, I think Jim Nance. I, I think it, he just made it so relevant, and he broke it down so you could understand it. Was anybody a particular mentor to you when you got into the broadcast side? I mean, you said the network worked with you to get you great on camera, but was there anybody that just kind of worked with you over time, and there was somebody you could always make a call to if you had a question? No, by the time you get to the network, you're supposed to know it, which my circumstances were just unusual. Was there a challenge kind of to go from your great writer and then all of a sudden now you've got to write for broadcast, which is a different type of writing? Did did that initially, did you have to like think about it before you started writing for when you were going to read something? I would read it off my mind because most of my career has been live. So I got pretty quickly that you had to reduce a lot of what someone said to do the report, you know, or ask the question. 
Uh, no, I got that, and that came from writing on Deadline. What I what I did have to learn was the technology. Like, uh, you know, we all learn growing up that when else speaks, you stop speaking. So I'd be interviewing Martina Navratilova, and the producer would speak in my ear, and I would just stop. Oh, yeah. yeah that takes getting <laughs> so, used to, huh? I mean, that really yeah. – people have no idea how hard that is. Well, it's, yeah, it's definitely a skill. And so then the producer would be screaming, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I, I'm sure I looked like my eyes were pinwheels, you know, on television because I, I had to, yes, you have to learn to speak while someone's speaking to you. So I had to learn some of that, you know, the technology of it. But the, the reporting wasn't difficult or finding uh, the words weren't difficult for me. Knowing what to wear was difficult. I don't know if you remember, maybe some of your listeners, I had a really bad hat phase, really bad. <laughs> I remember a game, a playoff game in, uh, I think it was Giants-Bears or yeah, one of the Giants in the mid-80s, and uh, the producer came screaming out of the truck. Now, you know how cold it is at Soldier Field. Like, it's no degrees. So I had this beautiful blue hat on, and the producer came screaming out of the truck and said, take that hat off. It looks like a satellite dish. Also, it takes a lot of guts. Are there times when you got to go to somebody at halftime, a coach. Now, they know you're coming. They know it's part of their job. But it's tough when you've had a bad half and you got to go over there and ask them a question and put that microphone in their face. Are you always kind of like, well, how can I ask a question that's not so obvious that I'm going to get them to scream, but yet address the issue at hand? Yeah, it's a little bit of a dance. They know it's coming. I mean, what I started doing was actually, and I, I, I see this a lot now, uh, I started going to the coach off camera and putting it into, I called it, you're making a Picasso out of a matchstick because <laughs> they want to get to the locker room. They're like, we have to put pressure you know, on the quarterback. Yeah, okay. But I remember one game, maybe it was a Patriot-Detroit game, and uh, so Belichick, he's coming off the field, and, you know, I ask him the question, and so, you know, I've known him so long now, you know what I, I did, Steve? I cross-eyed in of my asking the question, <laughs> so he had to laugh. I mean, it was like, I know it, you know it. Yeah, I just looked cross-eyed. Well, that's but, a great uh, idea. <laughs> yeah, it was a great idea. Yeah, it was, I mean, he, yeah, he laughed, but, uh, you know, most of those coaches, it's, a chance for the audience to see them. And once in a while, they'll say something great. But I think mostly they're, you know, you can almost fill in the blank of what they're going to say. And that's what I think makes your job so difficult because you don't want to get that, but they're so conditioned to give the, uh, yeah, we just have to play a little bit harder, play our game and all that kind of thing. And that's why I think that's a great idea. So are you constantly thinking in your head, too? I mean, that's the hard part about doing live work. We were talking before about writing in your head. You want to come up with something clever. And if you can catch them off guard, sometimes that's when you get the good stuff, I would imagine. Yeah, and you can't ask questions. So you have to say, what was the difference? Not, were you happy with the first half? What What was your offensive line doing to create the openings for the running back, or you, you, it, the more specific that you can ask the question, if it works, it'll lead to a more specific answer, which is what you're going for. So, yeah, you have to you're constantly revising up until the second you speak to the whoever it is in any sport. You're constantly revising what you're going to ask to try to elicit the best answer. You know, you see the ones the ones that you think are good are good. Would you have any favorites? I mean, you've you've covered everything. I, the only thing, I, have you ever covered hockey? That was the only thing I didn't see on this huge list of, of great events that you've covered. I mean, is there anything I've missed? 
yes, I did uh, a, you know a fair amount of hockey because the Bruins are so big in Boston. But I was really an NBA, NFL, baseball guy, mm-hmm. college basketball. I was actually Rick Pitino's beat writer when I was the 21 year old writer at the Globe, and he was the 22 year old coach at Boston University. All seven of Rick Pitino's <laughs> Final Fours. I'm great, great friends with him. So. I feel like in every sport, I mean, I guess a lot of people, if they know me, it's more for the NFL. But uh, um, Billie Jean King was one of my idols, and I've become great friends with her. And then I have a lot of college basketball friends. So it's sort of, uh, I've, I've been blessed to actually not just hit and run, but really be in a sport for a long time. What about, you know, people always wonder, like, do you find out some stuff that you don't write about? And did you have that where some people would tell you something in confidence and you have to say, like, well, it would make a great story, but I can't do it? Oh, yeah. Once I was interviewing Lawrence Taylor, who was my favorite player in the history of the NFL. I just loved um, – I loved watching him. I loved knowing him. I loved I loved the Bill Parcells, you know, who was so, so <laughs> yeah. tough and so great. And Bill Parcells would say – Bus leaves at ten, unless LT is a few minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> so I I loved LT, and one time we sat down, and you know LT had a, so many off the field issues, and I said I said LT, what you know what is wrong with you? And he said, Leslie, you know what's wrong with me. My drug dealer lives five minutes away and takes American Express. And, you know, it was, it was funny. It was sad. It was pathetic. And I said, LT, I'm actually not going to use that. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> well, Leslie, it's been a privilege to have you on. We want to have you on again. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure. Go to the Vegas Never Sleeps website and check out the Sports Rockin' Tour page. There you can hear bonus content from this conversation, plus a number of other great sports stories. And don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchin. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com.